Hello and welcome to Wildstorm Addiction. This is episode 12. We're going to be covering the weeks of August 11th and August 18th. I'm Joe David Solis. And I'm Ben Murphy. We got uh, six titles we're going to cover tonight, so we're going to kind of try to get through them as uh, quick as we can. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we like to try to keep this under an hour for you guys. But we are going to be talking about spoilers tonight, but all our reviews at the site are spoiler-free, unless otherwise noted. And uh, we do have a little bit of news. Just want to say thanks to the X Nation podcast and also to the Image Addiction podcast for running our 30-second commercial during their latest episodes, which was X Nation Episode 2 and Image Addiction Episode 24, which you can find X Nation at culturalwormhole.com and Image Addiction at www.imageaddiction.net. Uh, both of those links are at our site. Also want to... Uh, give a big shout out to all of you Tool fans who came to our site from toolband.com and toolarmy.com. Uh, you guys came en masse this week to read our X-Files 30 Days of Night number two review. Uh, for those of you who, don't, uh, who have forgotten, Adam Jones, who's helping Steve Niles write that, is from the band Tool. So uh, we hope you guys are giving this episode a try uh, because you came over and checked out our site and we thank you for that. And be sure and go back and check out, what was it, episode 8, where we covered X-Files, 30 Days of Night, number 1, I think. Yeah. So anyway, so that was really cool. Uh, definitely gave us some increased traffic this week. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> Basically crushed us. Yeah, over a thousand people, you know, in a couple of days. No, nothing big, right? It was awesome. Yeah, <laughs> I know, I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I know, I really do appreciate it, guys. I know, that's why I love Cross... Uh, media promotion like that, you know, brings people in who might not have normally checked out the series. So, um, we do have several new books coming in November. We have uh, Assassin's Creed: The Fall, number one of three, which is written by Carl Kershaw and Cameron Stewart. They also provide the art and the cover. We also have Victorian Undead Two: Sherlock Holmes vs. Dracula, number one of five which is written by the original team that did the first miniseries, Ian Eddington, with art by David Fabry. Uh, and, uh, this time, though, we're going to get covers by Ryan Sook. We also had a nice little surprise called Wildstorm Presents Number 1, which seems to be a compilation of old Wildstorm stories, uh, which includes stories written by Jeff Johns, Ed Brubaker, Brian Azzarello, Judd Winnick, and others. And you've also got art in there by uh, Doug Mankey, Amanda Connor, Brian Stelfries, Jason Pearson, and George Gianti, uh, Horse, yeah, Horthis Gianti, and others. And it says it comes with a Jim Lee cover, all for $7.99, but that's going to be 96 pages worth of stuff. So it's going to be a nice little collection of some, of some old Wallstorm stories. And I'm really curious to see why they decided to release this. I uh, would love to. I would love to see a lot of these creators back in the Wallstorm U. So we'll see what happens. Uh, definitely go pick that up so they show them that you're interested. Uh, we also have World of Warcraft Curse of the War Gen number one of five, which is written by Mickey Nielsen and James uh, Wan. Wah. <laughs> Art by Ludo Lullaby <laughs> and Tony Washington. Wow, what a name. Uh, covered by John uh, Polidora. There's also the two-step trade paperback, which is uh, uh, an old series written by Warren Ellis and Art by Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti came out in 2004 under Wildstorm's cliffhanger imprint, and this will also include Ellis' script for number one, all of that for 
All right, Ben. We got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and jump into the first review. <laughs> All right. First up, Gen 13, number 37, written by Phil Hester, or by Crudy Torian, and Salim Crawford, covered by J.G. Jones. There's a lot more names on this title now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so back to our favorite teens. We get our little synopsis again, starting off. This is Pocatello Part 3, Why the Good Guys. Oh, we are the good guys. Man. So basically, our favorite gens have finally stumbled upon Pocatello. Basically, the, the city that they've been looking for for months, you know, that, that is supposed to be their, their oasis in you know, the middle of the United States that is completely annihilated. Pretty much from the get-go, whenever they find Pocatello, the security guard of the city is not too happy that they're there. However, they do realize that, that these guys can help the city out and and basically help out the security force with anybody else that may may find them. However, the the new character that we ran across a couple issues ago, Pathcutter, who you know helped the gens find Pocatello, um, <laughs> basically takes off almost immediately, and Caitlin takes care of any of the security force from even bothering any of the gens. You get to see some some of her. Fun, fun fighting styles. Runt saves a bunch of workers from basically a collapsing uh, scaffolding, and you know he's trying to tell the city that you know, hey, we're the good guys. You know, we're here for good, not bad. And then we basically run into the the mayor of the city, I guess. Yeah, he's the mayor. And you know he he comes right up to the gens, and and he. He knows right away that, you know, they can be of use and that they aren't, you know, there to plunder the city or anything like all the other the other people. We find out how how they figured out how to find Pocatello, which they kind of just stumbled upon it because it's an invisible city, basically. Um, we do get a little interlude with Pathcutter. They're building out his character and his backstory because we find out that his sister is in the city and she's in the hospital. She's in a bed. We don't know what happened to her. I'll, I'll get back to that a little bit later. There's a, a doctor who, who's kind of hooked up with the mayor and, and he's all deformed. Is it how they're powering the city or how they're hiding the city that, that caused him to get deformed? No, it was the neighboring, um, the neighboring town of uh, Idaho Falls. Uh, he was working there when the uh, Number of the Beast event happened. And uh, it was the he tried to contain a um, leak, you know, basically it was going to cause a meltdown, and he stayed there too long, and that's what caused him to become deformed, and he had to leave, otherwise he was going to die. Right. Okay. Um, we have we have another flash over to to Pathcutter, and he's with his his sister. We realize that they were a, a superhero team called Hide and Seek. Just a quick one page, you know, little backstory on them. And then we cut back over to the gens going up to Idaho Falls to contain the leak that Joe just explained. They run across a bunch of mutants from the leak, I guess. And Caitlin's taking care of those pretty good. And then Bobby, you know, because of his his power to take in energy, and he decides that he's going to handle the radiation leak. And he goes in to contain it, and without a doubt, it blows up, and he comes out. As a glowing skull on fire, he doesn't even seem too too upset about it. He looks pretty badass. <laughs> uh, it was kind of cool how they kind of 
flash forward a little bit in this in this issue uh, to where, like you said, that the kids are already there in Pocatello because uh, you know we've only got two issues left in in uh, Phil Hester's run for this. So, so I'm kind of glad that that they're already there and we've got time to to spend here with the kids. And obviously, like you said, we've got a a mystery with Pathcutters who obviously was not who I thought it was. I thought it could have been Malcolm, you know, uh, Battalion's younger brother from Stormwatch. But obviously that theory's out the window now. <laughs> but uh, but that's cool because I like how how Phil Hester obviously had all this planned out to where he had this little history between him and his sister where they were this little superhero team called Hide and Seek, which is kind of cute. You know, it's it's something that, you know, you normally don't see in the Wallstorm universe because everything's usually pretty dark. It's funny, though. I don't know. I just thought of something. You know, it seems like all the teenagers in the Wallstorm universe except for DV8, of course. But for the majority of the part, they're the ones who have the lighter the lighter side of things. And it's the adults who seem to get pretty dark sometimes. But yeah, um, I thought that was pretty cool. And the, and the fact that, that the name he took on afterwards, Pathcutter, you know, still catered to his, his abilities, uh, which is obviously to find, uh, to find stuff. And I guess his sisters would be, you know, to hide... It'd be interesting to see if they even go over how that works with those two. So, definitely a pretty cool addition to this universe, and and this is definitely turning out to be probably the most unique Gen 13 story I've ever read because you know Phil Hester is really using the the apop- apocalyptic uh, landscape in some very interesting ways. And by the way, I'm really I'm really digging uh, Caitlin's black outfit, which I think is appropriate considering how her character has not really gotten dark, but she's definitely gone through some stuff that's affected her, uh, made her very moody <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, but she's lost just about all her friends. And as you heard Ben say at the end of this issue, it seems like she might lose Bobby too. <laughs> I'd be interested to see if that drives her over the edge or what, because... That that is pretty cool. What happened to Bobby? I mean, it sucks, but it's it's going to be interesting to see what what's the deal. Is he basically just energy with wrapped around his skeleton now, or or what? You know, for those of you who see the who get a chance to see the beautiful J.G. Jones cover, that's not a symbolic cover. That's actually what happens in the issue. <laughs> so I I really liked it. I gave it a I gave it a seven. I uh, just. Uh, that's above average. I think, like I said, he's doing a really good job. The stories obviously aren't blowing me away, but they're just they're 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 very they're very good. They're very entertaining. Uh, it's kind of like the Catch Twenty Two we talked about, where it's it's a lot different from what you're used to with Gen Thirteen. And while some people like me in, are enjoying it, some people are getting turned off by that. So it's it's kind of sad because, you know, this is obviously a writer who's taking a chance and doing something different and. Sometimes people don't like different, unfortunately. So that's true. I I also gave it a seven. I I'm I'm glad that Phil is taking this in a in a different direction. It's it's been great to see since the World's End event. Every single one of our favorite Gen Thirteen characters is being affected by it and is changing in a certain way. And in this issue, we see Burnout change again. And you know, when World's End first started, he was blind. He couldn't see anything and then he slowly regained his sight and that was a struggle for him and now he's changing again and I just wonder what the implications of this are and I don't know if it'll be a permanent thing or if it'll also slowly fade away like his his 
temporary blindness did as well. It'll be interesting to see and to see if this also affects his personality as well. Because he, he looks pretty vicious when he walks out of there. It's it's not like he's like, oh, crap. It's more like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. that That's what's the weird part about that. It's like, uh, are you enjoying this? <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> we're certainly not. All right. Next up, we've got Welcome to Tranquility, One Foot in the Grave, number two, which is written by Gail Simone, with art by Horatio Dominguez, and the cover by Neil Gouge. This issue again opens up with uh, with one of Gail's uh, funny little interludes, I guess you could call them, where she's always giving some sort of history of tranquility in some sort of fun or quirky way. And this time it's a uh, it's a movie poster, which features the characters um, uh, Alex Fury and his wife Pink Bunny and Mr. Articulate and uh, Zombie Zeke, apparently in some you know like 1960 style beach movie, you know, kind of like Frankie and Annette style, where they're singing and, you know, it's all it's all goofy and, and whatnot. You pan out and you see that it's uh, there's part of an article from 1966 where basically they pan the movie as being awful and it, it was interesting, it was, definitely, it was definitely funny. This is one of those things where I don't think in this issue I saw anything that really related to this but I know that Gail doesn't doesn't insert stuff like this without a purpose and you'll see that she does another one of these at the end of the book which is very relevant if you pay attention but basically they kind of play with time a little bit as we see um, Sheriff Lindo wake up in the middle of the crash that happened at the end of last issue where uh, her and and the deputy were taking uh, Mayor Fury to his welcome back party and they were attacked by someone who uh, took Fury and uh, left Lindo and the deputy behind and you know we saw last issue where the car exploded so you you know we were meant to think that they're dead but of course as you know comics you know they're not so uh, heck if you know TV dramas you know that they're not because what this kind of felt like but yeah of course of course you know the shows the sheriff that she had enough time to to get out of the car and, and pull the deputy to safety before the car blew and then you know we finally get to see the mysterious man up close, and he uh, strangely looks like a younger version of Mayor Fury. <laughs> Basically, just taunting Fury, and Fury challenges him to a fight, and and the kid just knocks out Fury with one punch. So, whoever he is, he's pretty strong to take out Mayor Fury. And meanwhile, at, back at the welcome welcome back party, the once thought dead Mister Articulate has returned. Of course, everybody is shocked because. If you read the old Tranquility uh, series, you know that you know, not only was there the thing about his death, but there was a, a second arc where there was an outbreak of zombies, and he was one of them. So, so this is the third, no, second time that they've seen him come back from the dead. <laughs> it's a pretty funny scene where where they ask Zombie Zeke, it's like, hey, is he a zombie still? He's like, do you have any way to check? And basically Zeke just smacks him over the head with his shovel, and he's like... What is that? It's like zombie test. You pass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of stuff that Gail Simone puts in here. That's hilarious. And I love this scene where um, where uh, Doctor Steele is the resident doctor, and she's an SBB, so she's got powers, and she can literally just look into your body and and tell you know what's wrong, and she gives him a, a thorough uh, you know once over and tells them all that it's him and that he's not a clone, not a robot, you know, that and for some reason he's actually seems healthier than he 
than he did before he died the first time. And then Pink Bunny decides to seal the deal by just giving him a kiss and telling everybody, oh, it's him, you know. <laughs> so apparently that was her test. And there's some funny little outside panel work that Dominguez does that's hilarious in this shot where he draws little pink bunnies and little uh, uh, blue flower uh, roses, which are Mr. Articulate's trademark. So that's the kind of stuff that I was saying last issue that with Dominguez, in the different comics I've seen him do, if he just takes his time, he really does some good work. But there's just some times that I can tell, I've seen his work enough times where it seems like he's rushing. But like stuff like that is, is when I really enjoy what he does, when he has fun with it like that. Moving right along, basically we find out that that kid is, uh, is a is, uh, Mayor Fury's son. It's actually his and Pink Bunny's son that, that they thought was dead once upon a time. Or at least Pink Bunny. Yeah, no, she mentioned it last issue. But yeah, but uh, him and his son have a nice have a nice knockdown drag out fight where you think that Mayor Fury gets the upper hand, but then then his son turns the tide and really messes up Fury bad and apparently he claims he could crack the planet in half if he wanted to, and I'm like, Oh, that's nice. Another another majestic uh class uh, superhero, just what we need, right? <laughs> Especially one who's who doesn't seem to be hundred percent good. <laughs> but yeah, he's obviously got a chip on his shoulder with his dad, who, you know, uh, later on we find out that Pink Bunny knows about him, and for some reason, she gives us the impression that she's been hiding him. So Maximum Man and a few a few others they go out and they find the sheriff, and so basically they now they suspect that Mara Fury is set all this up and that you know they have no idea that there's a uh, there's another person involved in this scheme so uh, yeah, like I said we in the issue with uh, with Pink Bunny letting us know that she knows what's going on that she knows who this is and the last page is another little little mock up and this one is um, uh, like what you see at the back of comic books and stuff where you could order certain toys and stuff and this is actually for a uh, a uh, BB gun and it's got a uh, little comic drawn that has you know Mayor Fury and Pink Bunny in it you know from that time period from I guess the 60s <laughs> the part that I thought was brilliant was you know they, they basically had this classic exchange with some kids hey kids you know what would you like to play with oh guns sir you know it's like <laughs> sure and how you know uh, but Mayor Fury in the thing says if I had a son I know what I'd be getting him for the holidays, you know. And I'm like, ooh, that one, that was nice. I caught that one. I don't know if you did, but I thought that was nice. Yeah. Where she puts little things in there like that. That's why I say I would love to go back and really see what she's trying to show in the in the movie one that I missed. But I, I really liked this issue. I gave it a uh, I gave it an eight. Uh, she's just, I mean, this is her world, and you can tell it. I mean, she is she she knows these characters in and out. She knows her little quirks, and uh, this is such a fun title so far. I mean, I I, just, I love her work. So, what do you think, Ben? I wholeheartedly agree, and I'll raise you one and rate this a nine, <laughs> which I did for issue number one. I mean, this world, you know, her first series was twelve issues long. We're two issues into this six issue mini, and. It is so well fleshed out by, you know, the the little things that she does with the the retro pieces, 
it's fantastic. Every bit of it. She puts so much humor into it. The characters, you love them. You know them so quickly. And it's a blast to read. And any time Dr. Steele wants to examine me, I'll let her do it wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> and if you didn't catch Emoticon's face, it was fantastic in yeah. that scene. Yeah, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, he does. He has a huge smiley face on. (laughs) Full on. And um, Sheriff Sheriff brings Maxi Man down to find them by shooting him, which is pretty fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) What does he tell her? He he calls her out on that. It's like, you could have just shot near me. Yeah. (laughs) Instead, she blasts him in the chest like five times. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I need to be sure you got the message, Maxie. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, the ad in the ad, in the back of the issue. I don't know about you, but I was like, hell with it. Four dollars for this issue. I already cut it up, filled out my address, and sent it in. I I can't wait for my BB <laughs> gun. I'm so looking forward to it. Oh boy, you gonna be waiting a long time. <laughs> no way, tranquil tranquility's real. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't. I just said you'd be waiting a long time. <laughs> I'm first in line. <laughs> You'll shoot your eye out. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, guys, you need to go out and buy Tranquility. It is, it, it is so good. It's well worth reading right now. Please do not wait for the trade. It's fantastic. It will make your week at least once a month. I mean, it's always going to be the standout. I mean, if you're reading any of Gail Simone's other stuff, I mean, you, you know, you know, her stuff is always fun. So, you know, just add this to your list. It's only six issues. All right. Next up, The Authority of the Lost Year, number 12, written by Keith Giffen and Grant Morrison. Art this time is by Jerry Ordway, Kevin Nolan, and a bunch of others, apparently. And the cover is, once again, by Gene Ha. Um, this is the last one, finally. Years and years and years in the making. <laughs> <laughs> we have the authority the last year wrapped up basically four years i guess one year in their time <laughs> yeah so the home home again home again <laughs> jiggity jig they finally made it back to reality they finally realize that they're back on their own earth and they have to kind of debrief themselves on what what has happened over this past year not much goes on in this issue except for Jenny getting pissed off at another dictator. Otherwise, everybody else is kind of trying to cope with the entire year while they were out hopping from multiverse to multiverse. Dimension to dimension, really. I mean, they weren't going into different universes, just, you know, different Earths. Um, The doctor goes to his garden and, and tries to, you know, talk to them, all the other past doctors, to kind of make sense of what, what has happened and and why they chose what they chose to do. Jack, you know, goes through all the cities and ensures that it is the Earth, you know, the correct Earth from from their, from their world. And he kind of realizes that the cities, I guess the cities realize who he is, and he tries to let them know that he would never hurt them. Uh, Midnighter and uh, Apollo, they have their little lover's quarrel about what went on. Apollo basically tells Midnighter that he's a bastard, but he's a bastard no matter where he is, and you know he'll never change. And then we get to Jenny. I, I don't think Jenny learned her lesson in that year. 
Well, I, I'm not sure that any of them learned their lesson in that year, actually, the takeaway from all of this, because they go down and take out another militia that is terrorizing people. You know, she takes it one step further, as the authority always does, removes him from power, the dictator. And Jenny does it personally with quite a chip on her shoulder. That's basically what this issue is. I mean, it's it's a wrap-up of their year and how things... How each of the individuals probably should have been affected by what they saw, but I don't think it was enough to really change who they are as a core team, which is the authority. They kick ass first and and think about the consequences second. What did you think, Joe? I, I know there was a mixture on the boards about this this issue, and the series as a whole, obviously, was all a mixture. Yeah. Honestly, overall, this issue reminded me why I never liked the authority before DNA's run, uh, because this is all it was. This this is a perfect example of what it was. In fact, I probably if this had been if this had come out in order, like if this had come out before World's End, and if I would have followed this to the end, which I probably seriously doubt I wouldn't, uh, I would have, you know, based on all the issues we had with it. I don't know if I would have given World's End a try. Uh, you know, I I think I would have been. I think I would have come to this and I've been like, you know what, I'm still, I still don't like the authority, you know, and I probably would have waited until I heard other people talk about World's End and then gone back and gave it a try because to me, ultimately this story, what this story was, was the authority's last chance to change and they didn't. And so they paid for it in World's End. That, that's how I see this story. It's interesting when you were talking about Jenny, when you started saying about how she didn't learn anything. All the other characters in here were trying their best to to learn something from from what happened over the pre- previous year, and she's the only one who didn't. And in DNA's run, Jenny's not there, and all the characters did learn something. I think that's interesting that it was her attitude that seemed to just get them back into the same old pattern, and that didn't even occur to me until you were talking about her right now. Yeah, well, she is their leader. Yeah. Yeah, everybody else was reflecting on their year and you know how they saw their alternate versions of themselves, and not that they did much about it, but at least you know there was some self-reflection in each and every one of them, except for Jenny. Yeah, which ultimately would give her her actions in Number of the Beast almost like a chance at redemption, you know, because in Number of the Beast where she takes the cage baby universe and escapes with it you know knowing that that there was a huge risk involved in that i'd like to think that maybe she had second thoughts about this maybe that was her chance of redemption was to actually try to do something to save everybody for once and self-sacrifice obviously is the ultimate uh way to help (laughs) so yeah i mean this uh this series did end with a whimper you know (laughs) after last you know 11 and Oh, 10 and 11 being so awesome. And, you know, maybe a lot more people will check out this last issue after, you know, everybody g- got them to check out 10 and 11. You know, I don't know. But all I know is that, yeah, this is definitely the authority that I don't like. Uh, and I hope that the team never goes back to this. <laughs> it's almost like shock value. It's, that's what the authority was to me at the beginning. It's like it works for a little while, but then it loses its luster. And... We've seen so such great strides with these characters. You know, you talked about Midnighter and Apollo telling him he never changes. See, that's already been trumped 
in the Wildcats run, in my opinion, the last issue that we saw, you know, his reaction to the fact that, that Jenny is gone and, you know, we saw a side of Midnighter that is different from this one. You know, so that to me showed that they did learn something and and that's why I've been enjoying it so much because it's like it only took them 10 years worth of comics to learn something but they did <laughs> <laughs> so but yeah it's just a shame that this series as a whole wasn't 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 better yeah and and Joe rated this one a seven guys and I gave this one a six I mean the whole series was up and down mostly down the last two issues were amazing but I mean, we all knew it had to end a certain way where it got us up to the present run, which is World's End. So, I mean, it's not like they could end with this big, huge cliffhanger or, you know, a big life-altering event. So, you knew it was going to kind of end on a down or just a here-it-is kind of deal. So, yeah, not much to say. Just average. Yeah. It's all right. We still got Tom Taylor's authority, which is running, which is much better. <laughs> so. Absolutely, and I, honestly, I I love how Tom is writing things right now, and I like it better than DNA. Although DNA did give the authority much better characterization, and you know, you did get to see their change through him. So. Oh yeah, yeah. Because if it wasn't for them, I wouldn't even be here. You know. <laughs> right. Because yeah, that team needed that. Anyway, uh, next up, we've got Deviate Gods and Monsters, number five of eight, written by Brian Wood, art by Rebecca Isaacs, and cover by Fiona Staples. And here uh, we have this issue focusing on Sublime and Evo, and this one's called The Beautiful People, which is actually a Marilyn Manson song, because uh, as you've seen the pattern, each of the titles of the issues have been based on a song which I thought was pretty cool Yep, it's interesting that that, that, uh, that Brian Wood decided to do both Sublime and Evil in this issue but since it's only 8 issues and we have Freestyle next uh, it makes sense that, that he would cut it down a little bit obviously from when we started seeing the cover solicitations it was we could tell that that's what he was going to do uh, was focus on a character each issue the only thing and obviously I'm going to wait till till the end, but the only thing I'm starting to think now is like, I hope we don't get to issue 8, and I feel like like we're just going to hurry up and end it because we don't have any more issues. Uh, but we'll see. I mean, ultimately this is serving as, as a great reintroduction of these characters. And I think that that's... Obviously he had a story he wanted to tell, but this is also turning into that at the same time. And... You know, you, there couldn't have been a better way to reintroduce them than this. I think. Um, you know, some people didn't, or some people wanted them in the world in storyline, but you know what? They've been out of it so long. Maybe this was better for them to just have this separate adventure. So, you know, we have Sublime captured by her by one tribe who apparently already has Evo in their ranks. You know, we still have Copycat telling the telling the story. We're reminded that. You know, Sublime's powers, the ability to become either as intangible as mist or as hard as diamond. And that's how she avoids their arrow attack, is to become basically like a diamond. So I guess shortly after she gains their respect and they take her back to her, their village where, where they start treating her as a goddess. But Evo, apparently, is still treated like a, like a slave. You know, he's 
out there shoveling horse manure and stuff and while she's rallying this tribe to follow her they even use evo for their own um, entertainment they they have him fight wolves and stuff you know just so they can enjoy almost like a gladiatorial match apparently the fact that he can turn into you know an animal doesn't qualify him as a god you know in their eyes he's just an animal which is very interesting the interesting take especially considering that, that it seems that they treated him that way even before sublime got there so uh, i don't remember much about these two characters in the old series but i think copycat talks about how they never liked each other anyway so to put them two together you know there's already animosity there sublime even taunts him and tells him that you know he can leave whenever he wants but she knows that he's got nowhere to go and that's the only reason he stays so we go on and uh the tribesmen come up to sublime and tell her that you know they've heard stories of all the other tva kids taking over tribes and uh they're afraid that they're going to move against them so they basically convince her to to rise up and challenge them and take them out and drive them from the land you know she decides to and evo finally calls her out for for the way that that uh, she's been treating him and they go have a very cool fight out in the middle of the night where you you really get to see her using her powers where she can turn into mist and stuff and you know he's trying his best to hit her and i mean just a really cool action sequence here towards the end and even when evo finally gets the upper hand we end on a cliffhanger where sublime's army shows up to help her and i was really glad that it ended like that because i I didn't want them to hurry up and rush and and tell this story especially considering that we're following two of the characters so i'm kind of glad that it ended on a cliffhanger like that uh it'll obviously eat into the next issue you know we won't get it uh uh, probably not all freestyle. I'm sure Brian Wood will mix it up enough to where you know it'll still flow in the story. So I actually gave this one a seven. I just uh, it didn't blow me away as much as the last issue with Threshold, but you know that's okay. Uh, it's kind of like the kind of like the powerhouse issue for me. It just kind of slowed down a little bit, but it's not a bad thing. I mean, so far. We've kind of been, I've hovered around 7 and 8 this whole time. Well, no, I gave the first issue a 9. Point is, it's been high in numbers regardless. I mean, this is still a great series. Can't wait to see how th- how this all plays out at the end. What do you think, Ben? I also give this one a 7. Yeah, this one was just a little on the depressing side for me. I, I just, I felt bad for Eva more than anything. And you really get to see how insecure Sublime is. And, you know, she was their leader for the most part in the first series or she wanted to be at least you know to see her insecurity to see how how stuck up she is or can be in certain times even though she's hurting in her own little way and taking it out on evo is just it's just frustrating but despite that i i know that people have wanted to see deviate in world's end and i'm glad that they're not in world's end just because what brian is doing to these characters how much he is fleshing them out i i think that it's more important that people 
read this first and understand these characters because he has brought so much more to these characters from the first series and really given them life. After this series is over, I sure as heck hope they're in World's End. The fact that they aren't now is probably a really good thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, we definitely have enough characters in World's End, especially now. <laughs> so... So it's okay to have these on the sidelines for now because they're having a pretty cool sideline uh, storyline. <laughs> yeah, and we can't finish this without talking about Rebecca Isaac's art. Um, she is still just nailing these characters. I mean, they're just, you know, as soon as I was starting the first couple of pages and seeing Sublime in her old costume and, you know, and uh, it was just like, wow, it's just so cool to see, to see them, to see them uh, in the pages again, you know. And Rebecca Isaacs has got them down so well. I even love she's got copycat's tattoos, you know. <laughs> Poor copycat hasn't done anything but narrate this whole series. But, you know, I love every shot of her. I even really liked, uh, mentioned in my written review, I really uh, am enjoying Carrie uh, uh, Strachan's colors, especially at night, because I guess the moon in this world, you know, gives off this kind of weird red glow at night. And so each of the scenes have this very unique look to them uh, that happen at night because of that. Especially the fight that they have at the end happens at night. Just just things like that that you know uh, we've we've been in this world you know for five issues and just all these things that I that I've noticed as we've gone that are taken into account. You know, because I mean they could have just copped out and just done the basic you know, traditional, like, dark blues and, and blacks, you know, for a night time, but obviously they've taken the time to, to remind us that, you know, this is, there's something different, this is not Earth, or, you know, and I appreciate stuff like that, detail like that. I agree. I mean, it looks spectacular. If I was rating on looks alone, this, how this book looks, how it feels, it'd be nines and tens every single issue. Alright, moving on. We have a new creator on series, Ides of Blood. This is issue number one. We have a newcomer to the comics world. Um, It's written by Stuart C. Paul. Art is by Christian Duce. Cover by Michael Geiger. I did look into Stuart's past. I guess he did a couple TV episodes, as far as writing a couple TV episodes, but... And I don't know if they were made for TV movies or they were actually, like, single one-off episodes. Yeah, I got to meet him there at Comic-Con. He mentioned that. Um, so, yeah, this is his first comic. Is he a young guy? Because it doesn't look like he... Yeah. Yeah, he's really young. I don't remember how young, but he's 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 got to be in his okay. 20s. So, as far as I understood, you know, he graduated not too long ago from screenwriting school, or, you know, that's what he went to, to do. So, this is his first foray into comics. So, now, basically what we have here is 44 BC Rome Julius Caesar era that mixed with vampires which is quite interesting if 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 this actually took place it would have probably changed the dynamic of of his reign and the entire Roman Empire as as we know it today yeah a little bit (laughs) slightly (laughs) and plus there'd be vampires running around today I'm sure yeah that would totally ruin my day that don't sparkle (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but don't sparkle. Yeah, these guys don't sparkle for sure. <laughs> so we're introduced, if you guys haven't caught any of the previews and you know any of the other Wildstorm releases in the last month, to Lepidus, 
which is on the council or yeah he's in in their political structure somewhat and right off the bat he's being chased by some vampires that that are bat like they basically drain him and leave him to die in a pool of water and it's at night of course because that's the only time that the vampires can come out right after that we are introduced to who I guess is going to be our main character throughout this series. And his name is Valens. Well, at least that's that's his Roman given name, I guess. Because what we find out is not only is this guy pretty high up in Julius Caesar's reign, but we also find out that he himself is a vampire. And he must be one of the few that are actually allowed to be in his political structure. And not only that, he is also hitting the niece of <laughs> Julius Caesar himself, I believe, right? And not hitting her across the face. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like, hitting her. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, getting it on. So, basically, Valens is, you know, goes to investigate you know, this Lepidus guy that, that got killed. And he takes an impression of the vampire bite with some wax, which I thought was pretty darn cool. I, I don't think I've ever seen that, you know, that in any kind of vampire lore as, like, you know, CSI vampires. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, don't give him an idea for any <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, he he takes that, that mold that he created and he goes to you know, a, vamp- a vampire consult and, you know, she basically tells him who, who it was and he, and he goes to, you know, interrogate her. Um, this, this first issue is dense. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of political structure going on, but basically it follows Valens and he also feeds on another chick, which is pretty graphic. And it's, it's not the niece of Caesar. He leaves this other chick to die. But we, we do get to see Caesar and, and, and how he is handling this, this vampire nation that is kind of taking over the slums of, of Rome and, and, and how they are even invading his own political structure. It's, it's really interesting to see how he's dealing with that. And there's a, there's a little fun fun nod to like a play like an actor acting out something which is funny because you know you always you always see you know caesar being acted out you know from uh shakespeare we are basically left with this issue of him confronting the barbarian s who killed this lepidus character at the beginning of the the issue. She basically flies off and, and and gets away from Valens by turning into a bat. And we, we find out that Valens himself is a shape shapeshifter and he shapes or shifts into a wolf character. Unless I'm getting that wrong. No, that's what I saw on that because I thought that was pretty interesting that they decided to do that. Yeah. But he does he does catch her and and throws a collar around her neck and she changes back into her normal human vampire shape and and that's what we're left with so 
So, you know, Stuart C. Paul is is doing some things with vampire lore. He's changing some things up to make it exciting. You know, he does have you know certain classes of vampire that change shift, shape shift into different um, different animals, basically. And and I guess that gives them certain abilities and powers that that they would have over other shapes or animals that they would shift into. It was a dense read. It was three ninety nine. It, it felt thicker than normal. I didn't check the page count, but there was a lot there. There was a lot to read. I didn't. I didn't feel. I didn't feel gypped because I had to pay another dollar. Like it. It. It read thick, and and I was pretty pleased with that. And and I gave it a seven. I I thought it was a good start. Like it's. It, it's got somewhere to go. It, it definitely has room to breathe, and and I'm excited to see what this newcomer is going to do from here on out yeah because uh you know the, uh, from what i understood too the artist christian uh i think it's duce he's new as well he's actually if i remember right was from brazil i think is what they told me at comic-con um and between his between you know St- stewart's writing and christian's art i mean this is just a great first issue i mean i ended up giving it an eight because i just thought it was so well done i mean from the preview the four page preview i was like wow i mean his art is so detailed you know who's doing oh carlos badia is doing the colors in this one and mainly i think carlos's palette is you know black and red in this whole issue uh <laughs> yeah. but you know what that that goes perfectly with what's going on here god i'm so trying to see if we even have any scenes during the day i don't think we do i think we have that one scene where where, where valen steps into the light for a second gets burnt you know but other than that yeah but everything you know even the even the layout of ancient rome you know i mean you're looking at the opening shot and it shows shows the whole city and it's like wow i mean the time it must have taken to (laughs) to get all that detail because sometimes you know depending on the artist they'll they'll skimp on the backgrounds you know uh christian is not skimping on these backgrounds his art is very realistic too, so that that uh, you know makes this look like a, a movie or a TV series, you know. And and with Stewart, you know, having experience in that realm, I'm sure that that's exactly how he laid this out. Yeah, obviously, like you're you know joking about earlier, you know, this is uh, you know an alternate history, you know, with vampires in it. I love even how he has Caesar dealing with it. You know, it's like to Caesar, it's just another part of the kingdom to to conquer. You know, it's like it doesn't seem to phase him that these are vampires he's dealing with you know so i thought that was interesting and yeah it does get a little a, a little uh, dialogue heavy in the middle but you know that that seems to be pretty common when you're dealing with this time period you know because th- this is a time period when you know there was a lot of you know this council you know government and people discussing things and you know so so it didn't surprise me that that we went there in this issue for a little while you know because that's usually where where we end up regardless i mean heck even in 300 you had the council scenes you know <laughs> yeah they didn't have twitter in ancient rome apparently yeah <laughs> you had to catch everybody up on what's going on and yeah there at the end you know like when you're saying when he's fighting the barbarianess i mean that was another really cool fight Apparently this was the this was the week of of uh, people fighting in mist, you know. We, we, <laughs> we had Sublime, and now we have these two, you know. And yeah, at first I was thrown by by him turning into the wolf, 
But yeah, I mean, there's different interpretations, I guess, of, of what vampires can shapeshift into. Um, obviously, you know, the first one that everybody thinks of is the bat. So yeah, for him to, to do something different, and for them to switch back and forth as they're fighting, that was really awesome. I love that here at the end. In fact, I was kind of sad when I turned, and I'm like, oh, it's the last page, you know? Yeah, the, I mean, yeah, the the $3.99 cover price, I was actually talking to somebody on CBR today that they said that that's really what kept them from getting it. We're just getting to that place where it seems like all comics are going to shift to that. So I know it sucks, but, uh, you know, if you're going to pay that much, you know, at least make it for a good comic. And I think that this comic is worth the cover price. So I, I really look forward to seeing, uh, seeing what he does with this miniseries, what other... What other folklore, whatever, what other true history he takes and kind of, you know, twists it to the, to the needs of the story, and uh, I just think it's going to be a really good series. It's starting off really good, and I just, I just hope it stays as strong the whole way. Yeah, I agree, and yeah, the the whole price thing. Yeah, I mean, the art was fantastic. It was so much fun to just drink all of that in, all that detail in. You know, it like I said, it was a dense read, so you didn't feel, you know, gypped because of the higher price. I think we had spoken earlier this week. I think the only thing that would have made it better as a three ninety nine is if it had that nice harder cover like Welcome to Tranquility and X Files has right now at the higher price point. But you know, I'll take it. And like you said, with the colors, I, I didn't even really think about it. Yeah, it was it was a very small color set that he used almost to the point where it almost felt like volume one of death blow when it first started out where it was very black and white almost like sin city and then you just got colors of red but this was more like washed out colors of red and black it was it was was fun to look at yeah definitely go check this out if if you were if you guys were on the fence about this at least check out issue one i promise you know it'll it'll be worth it yeah i think it'll keep you guys hooked too it was really cool read all right, next we've got the issue that spiked our <laughs> our traffic this week. Yeah, and I and, and I just double checked like over the past three days, it basically brought two thousand unique visitors to the site, which is wow. huge. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. All right, we've got X Files: Thirty Days of Night number two, written by Steve Niles and Adam Jones, art by Tom Mandrake, and cover by Andrea Sorrentino. I don't even. I didn't even see if there was an alternate cover for this issue. Was there? I don't think there was. I don't think so. I think it was just the first one. Yeah, because uh, in the first one, I got the Sorrentino issue. I mean, the Sorrentino cover, and I guess she's going to do all of them. But uh, her covers are beautiful on this. I mean, she she uh, perfectly illustrates Mulder and Scully. It almost makes me wish she was doing the interiors. I mean, uh, I'm liking Tom Mandrake's art. A little bit better in this issue, but it's still not my favorite. Um, but I mean, he does. I mean, he's he's a decent artist, and he's he gets he's getting a chance to to illustrate some pretty creepy scenes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, uh, this one, this one more so than the last one, I guess, because the last one didn't have Mulder and Scully in it right away, like this one does. Here in this one, right away, it felt like an episode of the X Files. Uh, uh, just the dialogue. I mean, the fact that Mulder is, quote unquote, doing research by watching an old, you know, corny vampire flick. You know, Scully's kind of giving him a hard time about that. You know that that's exactly what I remember from the X Files. You know, that kind of relationship between them two, where he's kind of the goofy one and she's the dead serious one. You know, 
and they're always playing off of that back and forth uh, with their banter and whatnot. So, so I think that that between between uh, Steve Niles and Adam Jones, they're they're nailing that in the writing. But yeah, you know they they go out, they go back to the the trucker's graveyard and are uh, checking out the. Oh, this was I have to. This was a classic Mulder moment. This is basically Mulder telling Scully that he told her so without saying it. <laughs> yeah, because they talk about somewhere they mention about well maybe there were polar bear attacks or something like that and he finds some of the you know what we know are the vampire claw marks and you know when he runs his hand over them of course his hand fits perfectly over them and he's like hey Scully I have polar bear sized hands and she's just sighing like oh, you know <laughs> oh that's classic Mulder uh, stuff like that like I said is what I'm really enjoying and and then we got to a part in the issue that, that some people question online, too, when, it, when we were discussing this. And I was kind of thrown by this, too. They find a little girl in the snow, and this is right as the sun is, is coming up. As far as I could tell, right, it was coming up, not going down. But when Scully picks her up, you know, she basically bursts into flames. But the way that they talk about it, it's Molly's talking about... I mean, uh, Scully's talking about that, well, she's got third-degree burns, we need to go to the mobile lab, you know, and I'm like, no, she's in your arms and she's on fire. <laughs> you know, this is one of those where it, it's kind of like, sometimes the translation between what the writers wrote and, and what the artist interpreted, I wonder if something gets lost, <laughs> because it just seemed a little extreme what was happening compared to her reaction. It was, it was okay, it, it went by quickly, but... But yeah, you know, they get her, they get the girl to the doctor, and of course, there's nothing wrong with her. She's got no burns or nothing. So obviously, she's a little vampire. You know, luckily for Mulder and Scully, they leave before the little girl completely turns and takes out the nurse, and I'm sure takes out the doctor too. You know, Mulder and Scully go back and they they review the um, the crimes or no, they're taken to the crime scene of um, uh, what was that trucker's name? His nickname was Patches. Yeah, him. Yeah. Because basically last issue we saw that, you know, he came home and the vampires had already killed his family in the show here that they killed him too. And obviously that's still a mystery as to why they would single him out. So uh, then Mulder and Scully, they uh, find some Inuits. Is that how you say the natives to the region, uh, Scully says? I believe so. Yeah, that's how you say And uh, apparently they're preparing for... Um, it's, you know, based on what they, they say, they, they ask Mulder and Scully to show them their teeth. <laughs> and it's a, another funny scene is Mulder, you know, opens his mouth really wide and Scully's just smiling real big. It's like, you know, okay, you guys are cool. So obviously, they're, these people are concerned about vampires. You know, they are preparing for the 30 days of night. And, uh, and then they're led to this, um, to this big uh, abandoned ship out in the middle of the frozen harbor and that's where the story uh, is lower left with a cliffhanger. So, um, like I said, I'm just really enjoying these issues. They really feel like an X-Files episode. Um, you know, like I've said before, with 30 Days of Night being more about the the background of the story than any particular characters, you know, that allows Mulder and Scully to, to really be the focus just like they were in the X-Files and where the 30 Days of Night is just the just the backdrop for the story so so that i think that is what makes this work really well is that you don't have like some crossovers you have uh characters competing for screen time 
you know, here you don't have that because they're basically the only characters you need to follow. Because usually the vampires, unless they have a leader or something, it seems for the most part that uh, Steve Niles, you know, just kind of uses them. Kind of like the way George Romero uses zombies. You know, it's it's more about the, the humans than it is about the monsters. So, yeah, I uh, gave this one another eight. I just... Uh, just really enjoying it, doing such a great job with this. I just hope that, that its momentum keeps up with this uh, throughout the rest of the four issues that are left, because so far it's been a great read. It sure has. Like you said, yeah, it does read like the TV series. is fantastic, and that's good that you mentioned, you know, like screen time. There is no competition. It is one after another, and it, it works so well, and it gels very well. And I like how you glossed over the cliffhanger because i had no idea what that little girl was talking about man with no arms and no legs <laughs> like what is going on and we're looking at a boat <laughs> well i mean that's why you're meant to want to read the next issue to see what the deal with that is <laughs> oh I, I i understand how the cliffhanger works it's just <laughs> strange <laughs> oh there's been much stranger in x-files trust me <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, she says that it's been there for over 100 years through darkness and light. And I'm like, that looks like a fairly you know, modern cargo ship to me. <laughs> we shall see. But no, I gave it a 7. It's It's been a blast to read. Yeah, and there was a little bit of funniness with that little vampire girl. Because yeah, the reaction was kind of off. This girl was totally bursting into flames. It's not like she was running a fever. <laughs> because, you know, she pulled her out of the snow and light was on her obviously heating her up i don't know that was funny i'm glad that other people also thought that that was odd and it wasn't just me (laughs) most dramatic fever i've ever seen (laughs) i know it almost looked like she was bobby in gen 13 i was like oh my god she's having a fever that is horrible yeah and scully never drops her (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, nope. You know this girl has third degree burns, but she doesn't. No, she's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Any other thoughts about this issue? I mean, uh, I hope I hope X Files fans are picking this up. I mean, you know, X Files has kind of become like the way Star Trek was for a while. You know, there wasn't there was a time period where there was no TV series. You know, obviously we had the the movie come out a couple of years ago, but uh, you know, it's kind of it, it's one of those where it's out there. Uh, no pun intended for the. <laughs> uh, I'm sure there wasn't a pun there intended. <laughs> but it, it you know pops up every now and then. I mean, uh, as you'll hear in a minute, as you know, uh, Wildstorm is releasing the the original X Files series they did, uh, you know, for on their digital stuff. So you know they're trying to keep pushing it. I don't know if they'll ever do another movie, but the, in this case, you know, they tried obviously at one point to introduce new characters that weren't Mulder and Scully, but it, it didn't seem to take. So it seems like for fans, it's either these two or nothing, you know. But you know what? I, I'm kind of glad that they're using this media instead of just movies because I think it works better, to tell you the truth. And I think most X-Files fans are dar- diehard fans. And I think the movies that they've had over the years, you know, left a bad taste in their mouth. And I, and I know everybody really enjoyed the first series of comics that Wildstorm put out for the X-Files fans, so... I definitely hope that they're picking it up because this is a great crossover. All right, let's move on to the other Wildstorm releases. On uh, August 11th, we had Fringe, Tales from the Fringe, number two of six. Gears of War, number 13. 
released. And finally, Ex Machina number 15. Number 50. Or 50. <laughs> sorry, 50. Oh, finally, 15 released. <laughs> It was retroactive. <laughs> Finally, that series is finished up. That's been a very long-running series, and I had to stray away from the boards because I did not want anybody to spoil it for me because I'm reading the big ultimate trades that have been releasing. So I still have to wait a year, which sucks. <laughs> so I'm in the same boat, so don't feel bad. <laughs> Yeah, because it is so fun to read. It, yeah, it's solid title. Yeah, in case you guys are wondering why we didn't cover it, I mean, first of all, we didn't feel that Ex Machina needed our coverage. You know, everybody has heard how awesome it is, and it, it lives up to it. And honestly, like Ben just told you, we're both behind in it. So, <laughs> yeah, I'd I'd be surprised if that never got a- any kind of movie deal because. I'd be shocked because it is very, very, very popular. Then Free Realms, number 12 of 12 release. So that series wrapped up. And Adam Beechin's Killapalooza has been traded. So that trade paperback is released. And you should go support him in that, that series. Go pick that up. August 18th, we have new digital comic offerings from Comixology. And we have Ex Machina 4 and 5 that released. Supernatural Origins 5 and 6 released. Supernatural Rising Sun, number one. The original X-Files series by Wildstorm, number four and five, released. Planetary, number 10 and 11. Gen 13, number 27 and 28. Stormwatch PhD, number 19 and 20. The Authority, number seven and eight. And finally, Wildcats, number six and seven. So basically the first arc of all the World's End Wildstorm universe titles are now complete and available on Comixology. And I know it's a big list that we keep, you know, giving you guys every two weeks, but it is really great that people can just go and download these and read them. And and you don't need to have an iPad or anything fancy like that. Just, I mean, you can read them in your browser and it's a great way to catch back up. And if you can't find them in, in the bargain bins, you know, 99 cents for the most part, you, you can catch up real quick. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's mainly why I decided to start adding these in because uh, I haven't seen any way that Comixology announces what they have uh, other than Twitter, but even then they don't specifically mention what's new. So I figured this would be a good way, you know, to keep you guys up to date on what they're adding, which if you follow the pattern, it's basically an issue per week. Hope I hope people are checking those out. Obviously they are, otherwise we can keep adding new ones so and watch out for sales too comiXology has had an awesome sale this past week i would have we would have announced it here but it was only two days long so if you're not following them go to if you got twitter follow comiXology it's at comiXology yeah you could have you could have read a lot of the stuff for about half off so anyway if you want to uh, contact us you can find me on twitter at grifter78 uh you can look us both up at the wallstorm resource wiki uh ben is yoyo master 146 and that's at wildstormresource.wetpaint.com. Uh, you can also follow the podcast on Twitter at wildstormaddict, or you can email us at wildstormaddiction at gmail.com. We just want to let you guys know we are working on some more creator interviews. We'll let you know uh, as those come up. Uh, but if there's anybody that you would like us to try to get on the podcast, uh, feel free to email us, and uh, we'll try our best. Other than that, that's all we have for you this week. And... Um, We hope you enjoyed tonight, and we'll talk with you guys in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Thanks for your support. Next time.